Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The fifth Sunday of Easter, John 16, 5 through 15. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. In Savior, dearly beloved hearers, in our days the principle is not seldom expressed that one cannot demand more of a person than he can produce. Whether anyone has done right or wrong, whether he will some day stand or fall before God, depends on whether his actions measure up to his convictions or not. If a person does something because he thinks that it is good, then it is good. The result of this principle is, first of all, the greatest religious indifference. They suppose that little or nothing depends on one's faith and religion. God is just as pleased when a heathen venerates and worships the sun, moon, stars, human beings, animals, or idols, as when a Christian venerates and worships the true God in the true faith, as long as the heathen believes that these creatures are his gods whom he must serve. That principle has another result. Those who entertain that thought are completely at ease when they have acted according to their conviction, and suppose that they are justified before God and man. If God's word demands that they recognize that they are great sinners, if they are admonished to repent, very often they say, What evil have I done? From my youth on I have followed the principle to do right, fear no one. What else? What more would God want from me? Nevertheless, my friends, as widespread as the principle is today, so completely false it is. Yes, if a person does something evil, when convinced that it is evil, it is a much greater sin than if he had done the evil falsely believing that it was something good. The Apostle Paul, comforting himself somewhat, says, Though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 1 Timothy 1. After Peter had said to the Jews at Jerusalem, You killed the author of life. In order not to hurl them into despair, he adds, as it were to excuse them, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. Acts 3. Yet we dare never conclude that because a per person considered a matter right, it is right. The Lord says, The servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. Luke 12:47 But he immediately adds, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating 
will receive a light beating. John, or Luke 12, 48. He will nevertheless be punished. As God's word goes even further, it shows us that true piety and fear of God consists not in acting according to one's thoughts, nor at one's discretion, nor according to one's intention, nor according to one's conviction. The great ruin of men consists in doing what they do according to the thoughts of their heart and the judgment of their natural reason. Yes, God surrenders those men to a fearful punishment to do what they consider most proper. Thus we read in Isaiah 58, Not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly. Then you shall take delight in the Lord. And St. Paul describes the condition of the unconverted as one in which they fulfill the desires of the body and the mind, Ephesians 2. Isaiah therefore demands not only, let the wicked forsake his way, but also adds, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, Isaiah 55, 7. Finally, in anger, the Lord says in Psalm 81, verse 12 of his people, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. A person who acts contrary to God's word is not justified because he has acted according to his conviction. He is condemned. The thoughts, the intentions, the principles that each person has by nature are the very things from which every person must be converted if he wants to be saved. Not the convictions of our natural reason as to what is good or evil and wherewith one can stand before God avail before God but the conviction that God gives through his Holy Spirit. Our gospel reading today tells us what this correct conviction is. Let us become better acquainted with it. John 16, 5 to 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he asks, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So far our text. When the Lord has disclosed to his disciples that he would soon leave them, they were so thunderstruck that they become completely silent. Frightened, they thought that, forsaken by the Lord, it would be impossible for them to carry out their commission and convince the world of what they were to preach to it. The Lord therefore says in our text, But now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, Where are you going? 
But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Hereupon the Lord gives them this comfort. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Lord means to say, Do not suppose that when I go, that is, when I suffer and die and finally ascend to heaven, you cannot fulfill your commission? No, unless I suffer and die, you could not do it. The Holy Spirit would not come and reprove the world through the gospel of my suffering and death, of my resurrection and ascension. That is, he could not convince them of that which you should convince them. But if I suffer and die, the Holy Spirit will come, and through the gospel preached by you, give the world the true conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Permit me to stop right here, and on the basis of the word of the Lord in our text, speak to you of the conviction that the Holy Spirit alone works. My friends, there are above all three things which you and every person who should be saved must have the proper conviction. First, which sin really condemns a person. Second, which righteousness avails in God's sight. And third, which judgment God will hold. First of all, which does the world believe is the sin that actually condemns? There are many different convictions about this. Some suppose sin is only a weakness and a sickness of the human nature. As a person could not be reprimanded because his body is sick, a person should not be reprimanded because of the sin sickness of his soul. They also suppose that many live so wickedly and coarsely because of their lack of education, their poverty, the false principles that were instilled in them or the prevailing tendency of their temperament that they inherited from their wicked parents. God does not impute all their sins to them, but when they die, will make even better people out of them. Others suppose that it is true that there are sins that damn men in God's sight. These are gross sins, such as theft, fraud, robbery, cruelty, murder, adultery, fornication, false oath, endless cursing, blasphemy, drunkenness, gluttony, and the like. The others find sins against the second table, and above all, those against the first table they suppose God overlooks. Finally, still others go somewhat deeper. They believe that those hidden sins against the love of God and one's neighbor are damnable sins, but they suppose that if a person regrets them and seeks to better himself, these sins are atoned for. Now, Which is the proper conviction of sin, which alone the Holy Ghost gives? The Lord states that in our text, when he says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. A noteworthy statement. Does the Lord mean to say that the Holy Spirit will reprove the world only of unbelief because nothing else will be reckoned as sin? Far from it. The Lord wishes to say, when I have gone to the Father, that is, when I have finished my suffering and death, arisen and ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit will preach through you to the world. People, there is no difference. 
You have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But see, God became a man, took on himself the sins of men, bore their punishment, and completely blotted out all sins through his bitter suffering and death. All who believe in him will not be lost, but have eternal life. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be damned. Through such preaching, the Lord means to say, the Holy Spirit will first reprove the world concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. What does this mean? This. The Holy Spirit will convince the world, through that apostolic preaching, that by nature they lay in sin and damnation. That is why the Son of God had to become a man, suffer and die in order to blot out their sins and damnation. After this had taken place, and grace was offered to all men, then came the chief sin, the greatest sin, the sin of all sins, that gives its power to condemn to all other sins. The sin which again opens hell and closes heaven. The sin on whose account man really is lost in unbelief, which rules in all men by nature. For, writes St. Paul, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all, Romans 11.32. There, my friends, is the Holy Spirit's twofold judgment over sin. First, he explains to men that everything he thinks, desires, wishes, speaks, and does by nature is damnable sin, by which, for, there is still help. One must confess them and believe in Christ who atoned for sin. But second, if a person does not accept this preaching of grace, if he does not want to throw himself into the dust before God as a lost and condemned sinner and cry for mercy, if he does not believe in him who justifies the ungodly, then the Holy Spirit does not lift his first judgment upon the sins of that person. He declares that person is not only a condemned sinner, but also irretrievably lost. Oh, my friends, that at least all of us would let ourselves be convinced by the Holy Spirit. It is terrible enough that we all became sinners, and through sin, enemies of God, burdened with his curse, children of death, condemned to hell and eternal damnation. Woe to us if we wish to deny this. Woe to us if we do not accept the means, the suffering and death of his Son, which is used by God to deliver us. We then do not struggle only against God's righteousness. We battle against his grace and surrender ourselves to his righteousness without grace, which means our inevitable damnation. For whoever does not believe is not first judged, but is judged already. God's wrath does not first descend upon him, but remains upon him. Nothing, nothing in heaven and on earth can save, deliver, and reconcile him. We continue. And in the second place, direct our attention to the proper conviction that only the Holy Spirit works of righteousness. As there are many who consider no sin damnable, so there are also many who imagine that they need no righteousness in order to be saved. Most concede, though, that the person who comes to God must also be righteous. Now, what do all men by nature believe is that righteousness which avails before God? A great variety of opinions are to be found. The one supposes he is righteous when he does what one requires of a good citizen. Another, when he outwardly fulfills what his religion prescribes. A third goes deeper and supposes that in addition, one must have an upright heart. Yet, he also hopes to have such a heart. 
What is the correct conviction of that righteousness which avails before God, which the Holy Spirit alone works? The Lord tells us in our text when he continues, The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. What a wonderful statement. Should Christ going to the Father, his life, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, be that righteousness with which we alone can stand before God? Yes, it is this and this alone and nothing else than this. It cannot be our works before our conversion, because they are nothing but sin. It cannot be our faith, for faith is God's work and can never become ours. It cannot be our sanctification after conversion, because that is incomplete and spotted with thousands of sins. Only one among all men was perfectly righteous before God through his own works, the man, Christ Jesus. He was righteous not for himself, for he is God himself and does not need his righteousness. He gives it away, presenting it to all who desire it, to all who receive it, to all who believe in him. In order to convince us of that, the Holy Spirit says to us in the gospel, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10.4. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Certainly, this is a wonderful righteousness indeed. It is not one's own, but the righteousness of another. It is not in man, but outside him. He cannot earn or merit it, but must let it be given to him by grace. It is not seen on earth, but only in heaven. It is a righteousness that no one who wishes to be pious has, but only a poor sinner who considers himself lost and condemned. Ah, miserable man, you who do not willfully wish to be lost, do not laugh at this righteousness. Though you may consider it ever so foolish, it still is and remains the only one in which alone even you, whoever you are, can stand before God. Ah, if only you do not wish to step before the holy God in your own righteousness, you will not stand before God, but will be confounded. Even the heavens are not pure before God, and the righteousness of all men is like a filthy rag. You who already despair of yourself, who already cry out with David, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Psalm 143, verse 2. Seek your righteousness only in this, that Christ goes to the Father. Do not say, How dare I consider myself righteous? I see no righteousness but only sin in me. For just this reason, Christ says, The Holy Spirit would reprove the world of righteousness, because he goes to the Father and we see him no longer. It is a righteousness that is not seen, but apprehended through faith in the invisible Christ. No matter what your heart may say against it, Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection is your righteousness. That is the conviction that the Holy Spirit himself holds up before you. As little as you would contradict the Holy Spirit, so little contradict his witness that Christ is your righteousness. And be convinced, even when everything else deceives, he the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, guides you into all truth, and declares Christ. He does not deceive you. One more point remains, about which the Holy Spirit alone gives the true conviction, namely, the judgment. 
Let us in the third place direct our attention to this point. Of course, among the unbelievers, there are those who are not even afraid of God's judgment. They suppose that no such judgment is to be expected or that God will not condemn them. They are only a few. Conscience preaches too loudly that a day is coming when God will reveal the hidden counsels of the heart. Most men either don't want to be reminded of the judgment of the last day, or they think of it with fear and trembling. No person is able by his natural powers to await that day with joyful anticipation. In view of this judgment, of what does the Holy Spirit seek to convince the world? The Lord speaks that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. As the preceding were, so are these also wonderful words. They may sound threatening, but they contain unspeakably great comfort, surpassing our understanding. The Lord means to say that the Holy Spirit will convince the redeemed of the world through the gospel that Satan is conquered, their accuser is rejected, and through God's judgment is already hurled into the abyss. If one is freed of his sins through faith and shares in Christ's righteousness, he does not have to fear any judgment, any accusation of the devil, any hell, any damnation. For him, judgment day is the day of complete redemption, the day of his victory and triumph, the day of the revelation of his freedom and glory in Christ, the conqueror of Satan. Blessed is he, therefore, who has let the Holy Spirit bring him to this conviction through the gospel. He has climbed the highest peak of faith. What the world must fear with trembling, that he hopes for with joy. What embitters temporal life for the world, that makes his sweet. What makes death difficult and frightful, that makes his easy and pleasurable. In the face of death, he can exalt with Paul, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4. So, my friends, free yourselves of the thought of your heart in matters of salvation. Let the Holy Spirit give you the proper conviction through the gospel. Your path will then lead from sin to faith, from faith to righteousness, and from righteousness to glory. You will experience that the golden chain which the apostle weaves in Romans 8 is really unbreakable. Those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. To him, the esteemed Holy Spirit, together with the Father and the Son, be praise and honor and thanks in time and in eternity. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in. 
and we pray that God's word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.